Welcome back to Hover Cars and Hard Problems, the podcast where we talk about difficult challenges in engineering and simulation. I'm Josh. I'm Mary Kate. And I'm Kurt. Today, for the third time, we have Prith Banerjee back, the author of The Innovation Factory. Prith, welcome back again. Good morning. It's been Thank so you. long. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be back. So, so in this in this episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about something we've only touched on so far, and in regards to your book, is you've talked about startups and academia, uh, academia a lot, uh, and and I was surprised to find out that Kurt was actually a professor. That was news. I had no idea. I, I thought you were making <laughs> adjunct, it up. Adjunct. Yeah, you I, know? I'm not at that same. Don't put my name with Prith. I'm not at that level. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were making it up for the show, but just as good. Nah. Uh, so, what we haven't talked about yet is the innovation that large companies need to do and what are the key ingredients and components and things that they need to think about they they need innovation to survive as well so how do they do that what do they do so large companies as i said right they do a fantastic job in the horizon one innovation they have an existing set of products or solutions they are in front of customers they're getting feedback from the customers and they know exactly what they do in the next version right that's horizon one they also know how to do Horizon 2, which is the adjacency, as I said. You have a product for North America going to China or India. They also nail it. What they struggle with is the new, the absolutely disruptive innovation. And as I mentioned in, in an earlier episode, right, companies like Apple uh, and, and uh, Amazon, they have actually done this well in terms of disruption, right? A couple of things that you have to think about, right? The... It's not like the large company is stupid and they don't know about these disruptive things, right? I mean, Kodak actually knew about digital. They just felt that if they start invest or Xerox, they knew about digital. Digital is coming, right? But their cash cow is their analog business. And they, if they did the, if they brought in a digital technology, that would hurt their current cash cow business. The really innovative companies recognize, like Apple, and this is what, if you read Steve Jobs' book, uh, it's kind of what by Walter Isaacson, he kind of talks about, right? Apple had a product called the iPod, right? Where Steve Jobs said, put a thousand songs in my pocket, right? Amazingly successful stuff and so on. And then they were thinking about the iPhone. The iPhone would have taken the camera and the iPod and all of it, right? And they were the iPod group within iPod. I, uh, Apple said, this is a bad idea. This is going to kill my business. It requires a Steve Jobs to say, look, this disruption is going to happen anyway. And if it's going to be done by someone, it is going to be us. We will disrupt our own business. That's what Clayton Christensen talks about, the struggle between disruptive innovation and sustaining innovation. It requires leadership to do this. And, and it did kill the iPod. And it did kill the iPod. So the what I write about in, in my book is, so how can a large company do this Horizon 3 innovation successfully? So step one is you, 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 you cannot have your existing people while they're doing their job on the Horizon 1s to also do the Horizon 3. That's just not possible. So you have to have a team, a small team that is charged with inventing new things, right? And in my career, I have been fortunate to have run HP Labs. I was CTO at ABB where we had a corporate research center. We had... Schneider Electric, uh, Corporate Research Center, and now at ANSYS, I have a small team in the city office doing work on AIML and so on, right? And, and But what I learned in at HP Labs is if these, these people at the Central Research Lab invent new things, right, unless they have a selling arm, 
it will not go anywhere. In the previous episode, I mentioned that we invented this MemRestore technology at, at HP Labs. The, the sales team at HP, they knew how to sell printers and copiers and servers and laptops. They had no clue how to sell memory technology, right? I mean, Micron, Samsung would know, but HP salespeople did not know. On hindsight, I have reflected that if HP Labs had a selling arm, that would be awesome. So think of it as an incubator. Think of it just like a startup, right? In a startup, a VC provides Series A funding to invent a new thing, right? Just show the prototype, show it with the product, some customers, and show that, yes, customers are willing to pay for. And that's what you do with seed funding, and which I talk about in sort of in, in chapter three in my book. And then I say, and then you have to scale it up. That's the Series A funding, right? Scale it with more customers. Then with Series B, you expand even more, right? So the, the VC is giving more and more money to show here is the business model that is working. If you have to do that in a large company, you have to treat it exactly like a startup. So you have milestones. The central research lab is doing these things. You have their selling arm and they keep doing this. So create the business in the central organization with a team and you keep investing, keep investing as they make progress. The other important thing is if they don't make progress, shut it down. Don't keep a thing just, oh, it's just going, going, going up. I mean, you have to cut your losses. That's what VCs do. They pull the fund funding from <laughs> a startup, right? So that they can redeploy. So sort of the observation one is you have to create a central organization. Observation two is you have to enable the central organization to have a selling arm and gradually grow the business to a certain level, right? Treat if you if that baby you hand it over to the large company that large company will kill that baby, right? Let that baby grow up to be a child, to be a young adult, an adolescent uh, adult, and then hand it over to the business, right? Grow the business to at least maybe 10 million, then let the sales team lead it, and then do the next innovation. So that's the second thing. The third observation that I have made is that no matter how smart these individuals are at HP Labs or the Corporate Research Center or ANSYS, they will not know be able to innovate in every topic. They need to keep their eyes open, right, to see what innovation is happening in academia, right? I mean, the academia, as we talked about in the previous episode, they are inventing new things, right? But they are inventing new technology, not quite thinking how that technology would be relevant. So you have to have this scanning function, right, in this central organization, which I call open innovation, that is constantly looking for new things that are happening in academia and in the startups and bring that new technology into your thing, right? And what this central team has to be provided is the the guidance that even if you have not invented it yourself, you get the same credit if you have identified and you have brought that technology into a complete solution that delights customers. If you do this, you will win. That, in a nutshell, is what I <laughs> recommend in the innovation factory. But I can go into a little more detail about exactly how that is done. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, you, you break it down so simply, and it's so insightful at the same time. So it's it's great. Uh, I my question is, what happens to what happens to some of those innovations that don't have that selling arm, or they gave the baby away too early, kind of thing? It's like, what happens to something that might have been a good innovation that didn't follow some of the rules that you pointed out that they need to do to stay alive? What what happens to that innovation? Is it is it die because it's not a good innovation, or did it die because it didn't take your advice? 
actually it's it's a combination of uh, of both and so uh so this this general thing is talked about in the concept of open innovation open innovation is basically not closed innovation closed innovation is you you do everything by yourself and you don't talk to anybody open innovation is as i said you think of it as a funnel where you are you're taking ideas not only from your internal team but keeping that funnel sort of porous so that other ideas can come into that that funnel that's the input part from the outward part normally this innovation is supposed to result in a product that is supposed to grow your your company to new areas like the apple from the macbooks to the iphones and so on but in case the company decides that this is not something that is relevant to the company they should be willing encouraging licensing of that technology right spinning out a startup uh at to do new things in fact most startups are formed by individuals working for large companies where they find that the current company is not going to see the value and the 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 right companies actually encourage that right so I'll, let me give an example john chambers the ceo of of cisco did this on a very regular basis he had this concept of a spin in model that i kind of mentioned in my in my book where he had this individuals like prem and luca and so on is very well known in the bay area right they they were creating new things right they were imagining new things and they were not relevant to cisco's current business of routers and switches and so on but john chambers gave them money says okay why didn't you leave leave cisco you actually don't have to leave cisco you stay within the perimeter right but i will carve out a little space for you guys how much money do you need 2 million for how long okay and what will you do in the 2 million some milestone that he has right and he led those people create those things right and within essentially has spun out the technology right and once he, they have the team has shown what the value is either cisco would go and buy it or they would get bought by somebody else and and john chambers made a lot of money either way right that's the thinking that is needed right so just going back to the roots of ansys john swanson who used to work for westinghouse electric corporation and 50 years ago and and he thought that well you're making all these things for the nuclear reactors and so on it would be cool you could actually build a simulation model for this right and westinghouse says we are not interested had john swanson taken that feedback from the leader and says this is not interested the technology of finite element analysis would not have seen the light of day he said i believe in this and actually his manager said you know just do it so he he left started swanson analytics right he wrote this software for finite element analysis using fortran right and westinghouse was the first customer right so it was a risk that john swanson took on his own and he showed the value and westinghouse was the first customer but the good thing is the manager of westinghouse didn't have to the risk was all on john right if that did not work the manager wouldn't have bought it right so he basically said go do it on your own and if you show something i will be your first customer so it was a fantastic i mean i want to give a sort of shout out and this is how many many innovations happen right most of the startups are done i mean i kind of talk about who starts companies one is professors right from universities second is graduate students from universities who worked on it third and a majority of is these people in large companies who see the problem the customer pain but they see that their current company management is not quite recognizing this is not aligned with the things 
at that point they need to leave the company if they believe in it they should start their company that is essentially the message that I'm giving here that's that's it's funny how parallel that is with the company that I came from that was acquired by Ansys they did the exact same thing for GE Aerospace they had, had invented some satellite software and GE's like no nope, we're not interested in doing it and they actually let them spin out and do it and 30 some years later you know we're part of Ansys and we were a pretty big company before that so and just to add to that it's as you were describing a couple of minutes ago like the first thing that came to mind was John and then you shared that story but I think there's a, a bigger overarching theme as you describe that, right? Is one word is leadership. And it really comes down to the supporting cast of who you work with, the organization of leadership, the mentors that are there to support you through that process. And you think about it, right? As you just said, if John's boss did not support him or said, you know what, that's a bad idea, get back to work, whatever it is, right? Ansys wouldn't probably be here today or as far as it is or there'd be a different spin of it. And as I said, if he had not said, John, do this and if you're successful, I'll be your first customer. That is support. Yes. Yes. Because otherwise, John wouldn't, I mean, he wouldn't have taken that jump because he knew, well, at least if I'm successful, I have my first customer. That is leadership. So I kudos to John's, John himself and his manager. I don't know who he was. Yeah. When you look at this and you think of the leaders and we know their role to encourage people, but when they're making hires and growing these teams, whether it's an R&D team or a Horizon 3 team, what attributes are you looking at for these employees? What kind of people do you want leading these teams and, and doing the daily work? That's a great question. I, I want people who are constantly questioning the current. Innovation is about doing things differently, right? So at the heart can these individuals think about, think outside the box, right? Don't think about the constraints. Are they really willing to think outside the box and, and testing new things? And I, I I have a very small team that are working on AIML or healthcare and so on. And I interview every one of those young, early career candidates that come into my team and I ask them that question. And, and it's that final question that I ask, right? Uh, not the question, right? I to evaluate will these people be truly innovators or not, right? Can they think outside the box and are they passionate about innovation, right? There are people who are, and to be successful in innovation, Medicaid, you have to be tolerant of risks, right? And you have to take risks and you have to support risk-taking. So that goes both ways, right? For the innovator, the, the research engineer and the manager. And I know you didn't ask me the question, but let me, I mean, I just uh, came to my mind. So when I ran HP Labs, right, I had asked these individuals to work on these 20 big bet projects. I mean, they were, when I took over HP Labs, they were working on literally hundreds of projects and they were incremental projects. And they were people, I mean, did those projects because it was an incremental improvement or whatever, right? And just by nature of the projects, they would succeed, right? So it was a safe way of working on R&D at HP Labs. What I told them is, hey, I want you guys to work in large teams and solve some really hard problems, so what I call them big bets. And actually, a lot of write-ups have, if you do Google, Prit Banerjee, HP Labs, all kinds of articles on that, right? One of those big bet things was to solve a problem, sort of P not equals NP, right? I mean, this is one of the hardest computer science problems out there, right? And one person said, I am going to crack that problem. And everybody laughed. He said, you, you know, this is so hard a problem. I mean, Nobel Prize winners have tried it. Turing Award winners have tried it. Don't try this, right? Here's this young individual who says, I want to try it, right? And he 
solved the problem, he thought. He submitted a paper, right? And it just generated so much excitement. Oh my God, this individual has written this P not P equals not, not equals NP and so on. And we are all excited, right? And there was jealousy in the rest of HP Labs. Oh my God, really? This kid, this guy invented this and his will be so famous. So there was guarded support for him, right? Ultimately, as it turns out, this individual, this work was, there was, I mean, everybody in computer science started poking holes in it. And there was a professor at MIT who actually showed that there was a flaw in the argument, right? And so the paper was rejected. And then the naysayers at HP Labs, the people who are jealous, ah, got him, right? He was trying to solve this problem. See, we shouldn't do this. And this, I remember what I did. The next coffee talk, the all-employee meeting, I actually said, hey, you know this individual, Jack tried to solve this problem, right? And you know that he's tried a really hard problem. And we know that that particular proof was wrong. But I want to celebrate the fact. I brought him and I really hugged him and he, the guy cried, right? <laughs> so we were celebrating a failure. But the message I was trying to share is, you need to try new things, right? And to this day, that individual has sent me, says, thank you, Sprit, for, for supporting me, right? That is what is needed in terms of leadership, right? To the ability to set up a culture to tolerate risks, risks are okay. And when you fail, don't punish that person. Encourage that person. And you literally give, you know what? That was a fantastic thing you tried. That is something I've tried to do throughout my career. That's that's very inspiring. That's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I know we're close on you time. You left us speechless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, Kurt's so, got a tear in his eye. Yeah, <laughs> so, Prith, I love what you just said about managers and leadership and people, you know, being ready to take that risk. How do we apply that to a company like Ansys? How does a company like Ansys really unlock open innovation? Absolutely. So what I what I say in my book is that large companies, right, they cannot do all that innovation organically, right? And you have to bring ideas from outside, but in a in a really a methodical manner, right? So suppose your individuals with an ANSYS are scanning the technology out there, right? What's what's out there? So you find a really interesting technology which is complementary to what we have here, right? And rather than trying to copy and trying to redo this uh, yourself, right? Just be open. Let's let's do a technology partnership with that company. Take that company's technology, integrate with our our own technology, and see the combined thing. Right? Does it have value to your customers? Does it solve a customer problem? If it does, then go to the next phase of a business partnership with that company. Right? Maybe take that company's product, put it on our price list, and do an OEM. Right? Where you give them twenty percent, thirty percent royalty. Uh, because essentially you are doing this startup a, a favor because they don't have the sales channel that, that the large company has. One, and the startup is always looking for funding, right? The Series A, Series B. And as part of it, maybe the large company can put a, a, a part of the funding for Series A, B, C, D, etc. Ultimately, if, if you see show the value, then you should be willing to buy the company. And so this is well-known. And I just want to give you a shout out to ANSYS, right? It's just one example. We have done it many, many times, right? I've been with ANSYS for, for more than four years, right? So there's this company called Denardo that I kind of talk about in my book. 
they came up with a technology for what is called design process integration design optimization a tool called optislang so optislang is this tool that uses ansys solvers as black boxes and allow customers to do a optimization of there are these thousand different designs and if i did this design is the most optimal right and it's a perfect complementary thing right optimization combined with our solver so we did a technology integration first with with uh, dinardo with optislang and that worked well then we put it in an oem partnership where we sell sold their their technology optislang for sales channel and we actually invested in them and then we bought them right i mean literally i saw that technology partnership go through this sort of four step process and it's not just i just i'm just highlighting one of them right we have done it many many times so that is open innovation the practice of open innovation which is a perfect right? you shouldn't just do mna oh here is a interesting thing mna is not a strategy you have a strategy that you are here your 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 you your current set of products are here you want to be there in the future right what's this technology gap that you have in order to go there you can do that technology gap by organic r&d which is what we do with our things but organic r&d takes time right it takes a lot of time lot of investments and lot of risk if you see something out there externally that is doing that or a version of it try to embrace it bring it as part of the solution and that is your recipe for success awesome thank you thank you very much for being part of the podcast as we mentioned earlier iPods are dead but thankfully podcasts which came out of pod, are not so we appreciate you being here for this and a lot of really insightful and smart and great advice that you've given us on this podcast and there's even more in the book thank right? you very much for inviting me thank you. I really had fun great everybody go pick it up the innovation factory uh, you can find it anywhere you buy books awesome thank thanks Brett thank you so much Bye. see you